You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. It's been a busy week and we'll talk about the announcement you'll be making in the Doyle uh, about the vaccine plan in just a moment. But just to deal with the start of the week and the fact that so many people around the Cabinet table seem to have been taken aback when Neffert came in with this letter that said because of the risk of the Delta variant, only the vaccinated should be moving indoors mm. uh, and that what that meant for indoor dining. Um, now, Tony Hulham was saying yesterday at the Neffet briefing, you know, it shouldn't have been a surprise to the Cabinet. It's been happening in other countries. He'd flagged it with people. Had he flagged it with you? And who had you flagged it with? Well, Tony and I had, uh, as you can imagine, uh, Dr. Hulan, Dr. Glynn and myself talk about these issues a lot. Uh, and we've been watching what's been happening in the UK uh, very, very closely. We've been watching what's been happening in Portugal and other countries um, uh, around Europe. But I, I think what... I think what cabinet ministers were surprised at, and, and I imagine members of NEFIT were surprised at, was the modelling presented by uh, Professor Nolan. So, of course, we were all aware of Delta. Sure, several weeks previously, um, we had brought in additional travel restrictions for people coming in from Britain, that, the, that you have to um, do two tests, a day five and a day ten, and you had to do the full uh, ten days in quarantine. So, of course, Cabinet was aware of Delta. We are aware of Delta, and we'd already brought in measures, and I had updated uh, Cabinet mm-hmm. at previous previous. But cap- why were they uh, so surprised at the whole idea that Neffet would recommend that only the vaccinated be allowed indoors on account of Delta? Well, I, I, I don't. I, I'm not sure that's how I would characterise it. I think everyone was taken aback at just how stark the scenarios were. Uh, it was the first time we had seen modelling like this, and to put it in context, we were presented with four scenarios. Uh, two of those scenarios, the, the worst two, would lead to a situation like we had in January or potentially much worse. So as I was looking at these figures, I was looking at them and saying, well, we would run out of ICU beds. Thousands of people could die. Uh, our healthcare system would not be able to provide normal healthcare, and we can't possibly ask our healthcare workers to step up again like they had to do in January. So the scale of what we were seeing was a surprise, but I've no doubt it was a surprise Even to many. Even with vaccines? Well, I think it was a surprise because of because of vaccines. I think so. For example, Scotland in the last few days is reporting the highest COVID case numbers they've ever had, in spite of having an awful lot of people vaccinated. Now, thankfully, to date, and this is what we're watching really closely, the case numbers, the acceleration in case numbers, has not been matched with a with an equivalent acceleration in hospitalizations. But it's but Delta is so new and moving so quickly that we're watching that very carefully. So. So I would characterise Cabinet on Monday, and I would imagine many people at Neffet on Monday, seeing these four scenarios for the first time, uh, being quite taken aback. And, and really what it is a measure of is how much more contagious this Delta variant is. And in terms of the scenarios that were presented uh, to Cabinet this week and the decisions that were taken, you do now have, that came in on Monday, this NIAC recommendation on offering the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Janssen to younger age groups. Groups. You've been working on a revised vaccine plan. What does that mean? The Esse- impact of that? Essentially what it means is we're adding an opt-in model for people aged 18 to 34 for Janssen and AstraZeneca so they can be vaccinated earlier. And what it means is that people aged 18 to 34 can now be vaccinated one to two months earlier which is a huge, huge benefit to them and to our entire society in the face of this uh, Delta surge, which uh, we are told is coming. 
So just to clarify, because as far as I understand it, and, you know, there was a lot of criticism of you earlier on, where, you know, when you were looking at the idea or potentially looking at the idea of vaccinating younger people sooner because of uh, they'd be out and about more. So the age going down by age group, hmm. that's going to continue. Next week it opens up to the 30 to 34 year olds. So that will continue. And that happens on the portal. Is that right? Exactly. So we now have two tracks. We have the track we're all used to and it's next Friday, Anya. So next Friday the online portal is going to open for 30 to 34 year olds. And as per usual it'll be 34 on the Friday, 33 on the Saturday, etc. Uh, and vaccinations with mRNA, mainly Pfizer and, 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 and some Moderna will start about a week later. So we'll move very, very quickly with the 30 to 34-year-olds. In parallel to that, we're opening up AstraZeneca and AstraZeneca and Janssen option if people want to get vaccinated earlier um, okay. for the entire 18 to 34-year-old group. So here's how it will work. Through the portal? So, so two tracks. One is uh, through pharmacies and the second is through the portal. So here, here's how it will work. Next Monday, uh, pharmacies will begin administering Janssen to people aged 18 to 34 who have contacted their pharmacy, registered with their pharmacy and said, I'd like to be vaccinated. I appreciate that I will be getting an mRNA vaccine in the future, but I want to get vaccinated earlier. Now, supplies are limited uh, for both AstraZeneca and Janssen. But critically, what I wanted to make sure, which is why I sought this review of the NIAC advice, uh, what I wanted to make sure was that every vaccine dose we have, of all four, are used up uh, and are available to people. It's really important. So as of Monday, uh, pharmacies, about 750 pharmacies around the country, uh, will begin vaccinating people 18 to 34 uh, with Janssen. And Do they have those Janssen uh, in their chemists yet or, or, or will that be distributed over the weekend? How is that going to work? Both. So there's about 40,000 Janssen vaccines currently out in the pharmacies and then through July between what we have and what we uh, have good certainty we're getting there will be a total of about 205 210,000 uh, Janssen vaccines and then more obviously coming in in August. So from Monday onwards 18 to 34s um, can go through their pharmacy and register their interest in the Janssen vaccine. And then from the following Monday, which is Monday the 12th, there will be an online option as well. So when you, when you go to the online portal, you'll now be able to say, yes, I'm 18 to 34. Uh, you know, I appreciate I will be getting a, a, an mRNA vaccine in the future, but actually what I want to do is opt mainly for an AstraZeneca vaccine through the vaccine centres. There will be some Janssen as well, but, but mainly AstraZeneca through the vaccine centres. You got a big delivery of AstraZeneca uh, this week, around 300,000 uh, doses and as well around the same of Pfizer. That big delivery of Astra, is that going to be available for younger people or is that going on the second doses and speeding up the second doses? Particularly, we were talking to George Lee earlier about many people 60 to 69 who were feeling cheesed off that they're still waiting for that second jab and feeling really vulnerable. It's a little bit of both. So what we're doing with a lot of that amount that has come in is we are we are accelerating the end of dose two for AstraZeneca for 60 to 69, but also for all of the other cohorts who've had their first dose of AstraZeneca. So our intention on you is that in about the next 10 or 11 days, everyone who has had their first dose of AstraZeneca, if they haven't already have had it, will, will have their second dose of AstraZeneca. Now, when we've done that... So approximately 12th of July, you hope, them have to, hope to have them all done. The, the original target was the 19th. That's right. It? Yeah, we're, mo we're, we're, we're moving it forward. And again, we can do this because the NIAC advice has changed to, to four weeks. So then for July, uh, what we have sight of is about 100,000 
more AstraZeneca doses. So when we've done all of that group dose two, for people who want to go uh, dose one then, uh, we have about 100,000 AstraZeneca and about 205, 210,000 Janssen. So about 300, right. a little over 300,000 in July and then obviously more in August. Will there be confusion by the twin track approach, the fact that, you know, somebody could go to their pharmacy and get, it's a different system? Mm-hmm. There's a huge amount of work has been done by the, by, by the HSE, by the task force, by the Department of Health in, in the last uh, few days, really. We only got this advice on Monday and we're, we're operationalizing it now. So the IT systems are in place. So whether you go through the normal mRNA portal or you go through the portal and get AstraZeneca in the vaccine center or you, indeed you go to the pharmacy, the vaccine system uh, will, will record your, your, your details. So, so, so that'll all be, all be there. And in terms of the system, because the vaccine certificate, the European one, came into effect uh, yesterday, once again, we're an outlier. We won't be joining until the 19th. Uh, When we do join on the 19th, will the system be good to go? Will I be able to get my cert from the 20th, either digitally or through the post? Uh, yes, is the short answer to that. There's a lot of work going on. There's a there's an interdepartmental group set up. It's been led out at Taoiseach's. It's been taken very, very seriously. Obviously, the HSE has a role. We have to make the data available. But yes, the plan is uh, that people would have access to their certificates, to their QR codes uh, by, the, by the 19th. And how? In various different ways. The, the details are still being worked through. But for some, it'll be through the post. For others, it, it will be uh, by email. And the fact that, you know, you've set up this expert group on on rapid antigen testing. Um, You're talking to the hospitality sector about measures to get people indoors. But given, you know, what we have heard from Neffet about the Delta wave, the infectiousness, there's a lot of people in hospitality saying, you know, how come you're only talking about a plan now for how you'd work the vaccine passport system for going indoors? Again, you know, these are or antigen testing. They've been calling for these measures for months and it's now you sit down with hospitality to say, yeah, let's work on a plan. Well, to be clear, nobody has been calling for this for a month. No one has ever said to me that they want a, a domestic vaccine bonus to be able to use in their bar or their restaurant. And they've what, been calling for the antigen testing. Though. They have, sure, but yeah. let's talk about the fact that you, you, you well, they're calling both. for either or so, both. So remember, when, when on Monday we agreed with Neffet's advice to find a safe way to reopen, uh, which would be this domestic vaccine bonus, the, the, the industry responded and said, that's, that's not operable. So not only were they not calling for us, they, they said we can't do that. Now, we've met with the industry. I believe it can be done. And, and I think a lot of people in the industry are now looking at how it's done in Germany and Austria, in the Netherlands and so forth. So there's a lot of work going on is there. Is it the only way to get people back indoors? If people want to be offering business indoors, is testing or the vaccine passport the only way to get that happening? Well, certainly that's the, that's the government position right now based on, based on the epidemiological situation. Yeah, that it would absolutely not be safe to open up indoor hospitality to people uh, who are unvaccinated and for just whom, whom it's not safe. It, you referenced the rapid testing and there's a, there's a lot of momentum there as well, as you'll be aware. I set up the expert group in January. I've set up a new group, which is an implementation group this week, chaired by Professor Mary Horgan. Because Neffa just won't budge. Well, a lot of work has already been going on. So there's work going on in primary and secondary education in terms of pilots, uh, in, in higher education, in the meat processing sector. The HSE is already using them. But again, in light of the Delta variant, I, I'm an advocate for rapid testing. I think we need okay. to see more of it. In light of that, we have this group now to, ex- to accelerate its rollout. And I think it's a particularly important given this Delta surge, which we are told is, is coming our way. And given that it's likely to peak in the autumn, Concerns about schools reopening 
are there going to be plans in place to make sure our kids can go back to school in September? Absolutely, and it was one of the recommendations or one of the things Neffet noted in its letter to me uh, was exactly that, was was given that we are likely to be in the middle of a large delta wave uh, in September. Obviously, all education we need to look at, we need to make sure you know everything that needs to be put in place will be put in place. I think what I am particularly encouraged by is what we're announcing today. So we got the Neffet uh, so, sorry, the NIAC change that, that, that we wanted. That means we can, I think, substantially accelerate the vaccine programme, which puts, it in a, put, puts us in a much better position uh, in terms of dealing with the Delta wave. Now, as you'll be aware, for younger people, say 12 to 15, the EMA has authorised the use of Pfizer. NIAC is looking at that right now. Uh, what I want to prioritise is 12 to 15-year-olds with underlying conditions. So there's a huge amount of work going on to make sure that the return to education uh, is safe and is safe for on-site learning. House Minister Stephen Donnelly, thank you for joining us on Morning Ireland. And as you know by now, yesterday the government announced that indoor hospitality will not open as planned on the 5th of July. This followed Neffet's advice on the Delta variant, which is now dominant here. While some have welcomed the government's decision to delay reopening plans, many among the hospitality, tourism and general public have also been angered and angered too by these moves to plan for a vaccination certification. Backbench government TDs have been among those to hear the most local anger. Our reporter, Fiercro Kiona, has been speaking with three backbenchers. He started by asking Fianna Fáil TD from Lijofoli, Barry Cowan, about the impact on the hospitality sector. I, like many of my constituents, was shocked by the recommendation, disappointed. The decision was made against the backdrop of, at the 19th of July, opening up international travel, where we can send packed planes to enjoy indoor hospitality throughout Europe, but not down our own towns. We've vaccinated the vulnerable, the aged, the sick. So there was good sentiment out there, good goodwill. And then to be hit with this bus yesterday is a source of great worry. I, for one, want to know and would like to hear what questions were put by Cabinet, what alternatives were considered. But it would appear that there was nothing ready in the can to deal with this vista should it come to pass. Cahill Crow, Fianna Fáil, Clare constituency. So over the past 48 hours, my phone has been happening. Uh, countless constituents in touch with me. A lot of them annoyed. Some others quite worried about what's been presented by Neffet. I think overall, though, there's a bit of head scratching going on. I think it's important that we follow uh, public health guidance. But we don't always have to accept it in decision-making. I've been watching this a lot through the aviation lens because it's my spokesperson role. And over the last number of weeks, 17 other European nations have embraced antigen testing. So there is science that suggests that you can use science and testing in a positive way rather than denying people access to normal life. Michael Ring, Mayo, Fine Gael. I have to say that there was great anger after yesterday's announcement. They were expecting to open on the 5th of July and they have done everything that the government have asked them to do in the last 15 months. There's a number of businesses, particularly in my constituency, that will never open again if this continues. I have had people onto me over the last 24 hours that have never contacted my office. Nefis were not elected to all Ireland. The government were elected to all Ireland. The government are elected to make decisions. Even the last two weeks, the weather was good in Dublin. It was very, very cold in the west of Ireland. If you were outside, instead of getting COVID, you get pneumonia. Fine Gael's Michael Ring ending that report from Fiacra O'Kiana Thonishtand, Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment. Leo Varadkar, good morning to you. Morning. 
Um, backbenchers want to know and the hospitality sector needs to know what is the plan for indoor hospitality? Well, um, uh, you know, I think for a lot of people, uh, the decision from government yesterday came as a big surprise. Um, We understand that people are uh, shocked, uh, many are disappointed, many are angry, and we're going to spend a lot of time over the next couple of days explaining to people, uh, going through the modelling, going through the data, explaining why this decision was made, uh, and then charting the the path forward. And um, the way I would explain the decision really is this, is that we're... um, pausing for three weeks uh, the opening of uh, indoor activities indoor hospitality indoor sport other things as well we have between now and the 19th of july to do three things um accelerate the vaccine program which we can now do uh, because NIAC says that we can use all vaccines and all age groups uh, secondly to monitor the delta wave uh, it's been dominant now in uh, england and scotland in britain for four to five weeks um they're taking a more optimistic view um even though they're more open than us and more vaccinated than us they believe they can weather this um we'll have a good idea in three or four weeks whether they're right or not uh, they are seeing exponential growth in cases scotland recorded more cases the other day than any day since the pandemic began but they think they can uh, weather the storm because the link between hospitalizations and cases is sufficiently weakened let's see uh, if that's the case uh, and the third thing is to develop this idea of a corona pass um, being able to open uh, indoor hospitality indoor sport indoor activities uh, for people who are fully vaccinated and people who are uh, recovered and, and bear in mind this public health advice um, while unexpected uh, is significant uh, because it is potentially a pathway for those sectors not just to reopen but to stay open throughout a delta wave without uh, there being another lockdown and uh, i'll be sitting down with the industry today and i'm going to talk to them about that and uh, try to uh, see what might be workable you said it was a big surprise to the public and the industry was it a big surprise to you and let me just add there as well are you at the starting blocks on all this planning you're talking about I, I think certainly the modelling was a surprise. It really was only on Monday that uh, we saw the modelling and um, I don't think anyone anticipated a pessimistic scenario, quite as pessimistic as NEFA put forward, potentially 2,000 deaths over the next three months, uh, ICUs again coming under huge pressure. Um, but bear in mind they put forward four scenarios, um, an optimistic one which is very different and um, we'll have a better idea over the next couple of weeks, particularly when we see what happens in, in Britain, uh, as to whether uh, the optimistic scenario looks more likely in a few weeks time and we do have to bear in mind that uh, you know data new data comes in facts change models change and and that's still that's still a possibility uh, in terms of developing a green pass or corona pass and that's not something we'd planned for uh, to be very honest um, we took a decision months ago that we wouldn't go down that road in Ireland for all the reasons that you're going to uh, hear from people as to why uh, a lot of people will object to it um, but we have done a lot of work on a digital COVID cert for international travel and one thing we're going to try and work out over the next couple of days now is whether we can adapt that uh, for use uh, um, for indoor activities in Ireland and again what I'm going to say to the sector today when I meet them um, you know we do now have public health advice that says that it is possible to reopen uh, indoor activity and stay open uh, and this could be potentially the pathway to do it and bear in mind more and more people are getting vaccinated uh, every day we're in around half the adult population being fully vaccinated we can now accelerate the vaccine program over the next couple of weeks uh, a lot of younger people who feel they're never going to get vaccinated well they actually are in the next couple of weeks 
Yes, but we have families going on holiday or on holiday already in this country. Now, is it the case uh, that if you introduce this vaccine pass, that you could have one family in a hotel with their children under 16, all sitting down to enjoy an indoor dinner? And down the road in the caravan park, you have a situation where the parents might be vaccinated. They might not, but they probably will be vaccinated uh, and their children will not. So they can't go down on a rainy evening to enjoy dinner in an indoor restaurant or bar. Well, th- well there will be anomalies um, and there are details we have to work out. So uh, when it comes to hotels, y- you know, it's always been the case that hotel residents have been able to um well, that would be food. the situation. The family in the hotel, they can all sit down together. Mm-hmm. The family in the caravan cannot. Yeah, and the reason why that is, is that even during level five, even during the worst period of the pandemic, we allowed hotel residents to be served a meal uh, indoors. And that's not something that we, we intend to change. One thing we'll have to look at is, is children under six. Um, they are often exempt uh, in these systems. Might be possible to do that. And the children under 16 um, are not being vaccinated. That that that's more difficult uh, because because obviously ch- you know children of that age group can can get and transmit the virus. But these are things we're going to have to figure out and try to work out over the next uh, and not uh, next just period. that, but this as well that the staff serving the tables potentially more than likely will not be vaccinated. Well, I think bear in mind, it's never been the case that you had to be vaccinated to go to work throughout this pandemic. We've had healthcare workers going to work unvaccinated, teachers in front of classrooms, people working in retail, driving buses who aren't vaccinated. Um, what Neffet is saying to us is, is that um, if you were working indoors in a restaurant or a pub and all of your customers were fully vaccinated, that's actually a, a low risk scenario. But Do you of course, think that's fair? Do you think that's fair? I don't think anything's fair about this pandemic. That, that the young people serving the table are being told you'll have to wait up to September to get a vaccination, but it's okay for you to work and serve the food to, to, to the, 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 over, the over 30s, let's say, who are vaccinated. No, I, I don't think anything is fair about this pandemic and uh, science isn't always fair. Um, but this is the reality that now faces us. Uh, the alternative to uh, opening with the Green Pass, with the uh, Corona Pass, uh, is not opening at all, um, having to wait until September when we achieve herd immunity. M- maybe not even then. Who knows? There'll be more variants then. We'll be heading into winter. Um, so is it fair to say to businesses that you may never reopen, um, or certainly not this side of September? Is it fair to, pe- to people who work in those uh, industries, including very many young people, to say to them that somebody who works in retail, for example, uh, who isn't vaccinated, can go can go to work um, and serve customers who aren't vaccinated and you can't go to work in, in, in a restaurant or hotel? tell where people are fully vaccinated. Do you remember what you said last October, I think? You said, when you were talking about Neffet, you said none of these people uh, would have faced being on the PUP payment. Uh, None of them will have to tell someone that they're losing a job. None will have to shutter a business for the last time. Do you still believe that? I believe that applies to me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a public servant um, uh, and I'm somebody who's in that group of people in our society who have not lost their jobs during this pandemic. Uh, and I'm grateful for that every single day because um, I think every single day of the tens of thousands of people who do have to shutter their businesses, uh, who are bitterly disappointed today, and the hundreds of thousands of people who are still on the pandemic unemployment payment. And we have a particular responsibility as politicians, as elected people in government, uh, to be aware of that when we take decisions. and. 
and we don't take them lightly. Uh, and you were referring to Neffet when, when you made that statement last October. Uh, would you consider now getting an independent evaluation of the Neffet advice? Um, like we're not going to commission an independent evaluation, but what will happen is all of the data, all of the data from the modelling group will be published, all of the assumptions behind it will be made available, and I would certainly encourage people who have an interest in this area, and there's lots of them, mathematicians, scientists, virologists, doctors, public health experts, uh, to take a look at the data and scrutinise it. You know, I, I, I hope that Neffet is being too pessimistic here. I hope Neffet uh, turns out to be wrong. I hope the situation in um, England and Scotland doesn't deteriorate in the way that we uh, believe it will. Um, and if that modelling turns out to be wrong, uh, it can be reviewed and it can be changed. But the balance of risk at the moment is very high. You know, no government faced with the possibility uh, of a, another wave, a Delta wave, that res would result in 2,000 deaths, ICUs coming under enormous pressure, doing that again to our healthcare workers, uh, could have made a decision to do anything other than pause. But you know that the, the, I suppose, the solidarity, if you like, around COVID that you've had within government and among the opposition, that that is now fraying. I mean, they're saying uh, what you're proposing here with this vaccine certification, that it's mm -hmm. bananas. Uh, Roisin Shortall earlier talked about the discriminatory nature of it, and, and there's more as well. Have you had any advice from the Attorney General on whether this is workable or not? We had initial advice yesterday from the Attorney General um, uh, who believes this is this is lawful. We'll have to obviously uh, pass certain laws to do it, but that, it, that, but that it wouldn't be unconstitutional. But that was his initial advice. He wants to consider it again. Uh, I have to say, I am disappointed at the approach of, of Labour and the Social Democrats in, in particular. Um, up until now, they've always said that we should take public health advice and follow the advice of Neffet. They were critical them? of us when we didn't, and, and now Why they've didn't you brief totally them? turned you on that. Roisin Shortall said they haven't had a briefing from government for months. Um, I'm not sure if it's months now. Months, she did. She I, said December. That will certainly be made, made available. No briefing or sharing f of the opposition and none since December, that's what she said. Well, we, we will make sure that the opposition uh, are fully briefed, that they have an opportunity to meet with the CMO, um, meet with Professor Nolan, go through the detail. It, w it would have been better if they perhaps waited for that before reacting the way they did, but I understand the reaction. Sh should you not have acted first to bring them with you? Um, you know, I, 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 they're all, they're briefings have always been available. I don't know the exact details about the last couple of weeks, or but, but brief, briefings briefings are available and, and, and will be made available. And and you know, Neffet, the CMO, um, Naya conference them. They do make themselves available to explain yeah. explain the, explain their advice and, and their and their information. Okay, I do want to to hear from young people because this is a, a big issue. Uh, and last night, our reporter Una Kelly, uh, she went out and about in Rathmullen in Donegal. Put on your headphones there and have a listen to this. And this is what they had to say to her about these proposals seems logical I wouldn't say it's fair but it's obviously logical that vaccinated people should be able to do more but it doesn't it's not fair in the sense that we as young people haven't even been offered it it's not like we've turned down a vaccine and now we don't get the benefits of vaccinated people what they get we haven't been offered it at all so it's like we're being excluded based on an option that we weren't even given we've missed out on so much that you're nearly fed up you just want it all over and it's like dragging on and dragging on at this stage we're just kind of taking what we're given i think that's kind of the real puzzling fact of it that a lot of the pubs and restaurants are made up of younger staff uni students just trying to make a bit of money over the summer that side of it i don't think it's been thought through but it'll be interesting to see maybe it'll speed up the timeline 
for uh, people getting their vaccines? I think it's a bit outrageous, to be honest. Very unfair on young people. I don't really understand how the government can be planning to move forward with international travel from the 19th and not be allowing indoor dining. And I think we all felt quite safe um, last summer dining indoors. In terms of reopening in general for the hospitality sector, they've had like the most woeful couple of years or two years or a year and a half. It's better that they're opening to some than none at all, which was one of the options at one stage. And the biggest question for me is who's going to be serving these people that are vaccinated and going in because at the end of the day, it's mainly the main people that are serving in restaurants, hotels and stuff, they're all under a certain age. The thought behind, the thought process behind it doesn't make much sense to me at all. It's, th- it's not really fair that we have to be expected just to either sit outside or just wait at home until it all, it all gets good. Tonita, do you want to respond to the young people there who talked about the unfairness mm-hmm. of what's happening to them? Well, it is unfair. Um, and I think... If you listen to those comments in the round, they're eminently reasonable. You know, I think they could have been a lot angrier, and perhaps I would have been angrier if I'd been asked that question when I when I, when I was their age. Um, the best thing we can do for younger people is get them vaccinated as quickly as possible. And the best news that we had yesterday was the decision from NIAC that we can now use all vaccines uh, on all age groups, and that will allow us now to accelerate the vaccine program. And there are people in their 30s and 20s who think that they are never going to get their vaccine. They are. They're going to get it in the next few weeks. Uh, and that's the best thing we, we can do, get everyone vaccinated as soon as possible. Um, that's now a possibility. And bear in mind, another positive thing that will happen uh, next Monday, um, outdoor gatherings of between 200 and 500, if organised, will be allowed. Uh, and people can meet up at home uh, in private homes if they're fully vaccinated mm-hmm with no limit on numbers. So, you know, there may be a sense today that we're going backwards. We're actually not. We're going to go forwards on Monday. No, no, I think on, there's on a sense of, of, of perhaps, unf- to stay with that word, unfairness, because um, 50 can attend a wedding, uh, 50 can attend a, a, a church service, uh, yet you said yesterday no confirmations or communions uh, will take place. Uh, you can go to the cinema and these gatherings you talk about and people meeting outdoors and people meeting in family homes and gardens, despite the fact that the outbreaks we were told earlier on were happening in family home environments. And yet the one sector, and they feel this, uh, the one sector that's being hammered is the hospitality sector. I think there's a few a few different things there. You know, bear in mind in cinemas, it's it's socially distanced. I'm, I'm not sure if you had a chance to be be at, be at a cinema um, in the pandemic. Um, I've had the pleasure of it, and it's you're indoors really, and you're ventilation really is a factor. And you're very spread out. You're not. It's not four or five people at a table. There's four or five seats in between you, so it's a different scenario. But perhaps with vaccination passes, we'd be able to have full cinemas again or in full theaters again. Bear in mind the possibilities that are now open to us uh, when it comes to household gatherings. We are saying that people are fully vaccinated can meet up in private households without any limit on the numbers you know that's a, a real positive that we weren't able to do um, up until now for 15 months um, the maximum was something like 15 we can now have relatively large numbers of people over to your house if they're fully vaccinated well, more people get vaccinated every day why no communions or confirmations uh, the advice again from Neff is that they should be deferred um, is it? and it is oh yeah absolutely um, and that, that's that's the advice and that is again because um, communions and confirmations uh, are associated um, unfortunately with um, with social events thereafter and there have been 
uh, super spreader events linked to them. Um, I know that can be true as well of funerals and weddings, but not so easy to defer. People want to work, but if they can't work because of the, the rules around indoor hospitality, uh, you're extending the PUP payments? Yeah, th- that's right. On, on that, so we're, we're doing two things in terms of financial support. Um, businesses that are remaining closed will get a double uh, crisp payment for the next two weeks. Uh, and people who were taken on, if you like, in the last week or so with the view to uh, being able to work, mm. um, they'll be able to enter or re-enter the pandemic unemployment payment uh, um, up until the 7th of July. So nobody will be disadvantaged. Are you sense. going to consider antigen testing as perhaps one means of being admitted to indoor dining? I definitely think we have to consider testing. Uh, you know, bear in mind how the digital certificate works. Um, it's not it's vaccine recovered or uh, a recent um, negative test. Um, that's how the cert actually works at the moment. So I do think that's something we have to give close consideration to. It would be a departure from public health advice. I need to be straight about that. Um, but uh, I think that is something that will have to form okay. part of our And is it still full steam ahead for the digital passport for overseas travel from the 19th of July? Uh, yes, it's not, not without its complications to Including produce those Including PCR testing? Uh, Despite the Neffet advice? It's, it's a European law and it's a European framework. So the answer to that question is yes. But the public health advice, let's be very clear, that the public health advice is that uh, uh, people who, um, the, the, uh, if you're not fully vaccinated or if you're not recovered from COVID in the last 19 months, you, you shouldn't engage in international travel. There is a risk that you could get infected, bring the virus or a variant uh, back to Ireland. That's the public health advice. That is very clear. However, the European law, the legal framework is different. And if uh, a European citizen or an Irish citizen arrives in the country, um, they're not vaccinated or recovered, but they do have a negative PCR test, we won't refuse them entry to the country. Tónis de Varadkar, thank you for coming in to us this morning. Pubs and restaurants still stopped from serving indoors. Two weeks to come up with a plan to let fully vaccinated people in later and try to vaccinate more people quicker to deal with Neffet's prediction of a faster spread of a Delta variant of COVID-19. Connor to Leo Radker told Mary earlier that the government understands the announcement was a surprise for many people and the shock, disappointment and anger felt by many of them and urged people to bear in mind that the advice given by Neffet offers an opportunity to reopen indoor activity and stay open. Let's speak to Tom Mulligan, owner of the Cobbleston Bar in Smithfield in Dublin, and Wendy Akers, co-owner of 50-50 restaurants in Ashburn, Navan and Temple Oak. Um, Wendy, I'll come to you first. What are you going to do now? Good morning, Gavin. How are you doing? Um, we are left in limbo yet again. We, we really just don't know. We've started our preparations for opening on July the 5th, and yet again, just the road has been pulled out from underneath us. Tom, what are you going to do now? Well, it's a bit like uh, what's been going on. The advice is very, very strong, and I don't think the government would have gone along with it unless they were afraid of this new uh, variant. I just think um, we have to kind of just accept what has happened and the decision by NEFED and the government subsequent decision. And uh, it's a matter of three weeks. I know it's, it's kind of putting it on the long finger, but the alternative, there is no, nobody has an alternative to what Neffet and the government have said. Um, we're, uh, to, to say we're disappointed is, is putting it mildly. Okay. Um, but we have, we have four full-time staff, two of them are vaccinated, two of them are not. The part-timers that we would use would be, would be um, student-type uh, boys and girls, and we don't want to see them 
caught in a, 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 a medical drama. And we, we, whilst we were, were annoyed about not being able to function fully, we kind of accept that, like, for the health of people that we have to go along with what when has did, been decided upon. Sorry, Tom. Wendy, could you make a COVID passport or a COVID pass work in your restaurants? I think we find it very difficult to police. I mean, we have, our majority of staff are between 18 and 22-year-old uh, boys and girls, right? So... You come through with your COVID passport. Can they police it? Can they turn around and say, well, that's you, that's not you? It is going to be very, very difficult. Tom, could you make a COVID pass work in the couple? Well, well right, we, have, we have in the past, we have uh, kind of had a, uh, the option of checking people's ID and age, um, age status when they come through the door. And we, we find it fairly, fairly difficult, even with the national uh, ID card, and people will kind of try and uh, force whatever their hand is to get in or get sale, but we have no idea whether a, a, a national um, passport showing uh, a vaccination will work or what. We don't even know what it looks like. We've And it is going to take them a couple of weeks to come together with this. And in the meantime, how do we take it? You say to somebody, are you vaccinated? They'll say yes. And then we, we have to either take their word for it or deny them entry. Wendy, in the meantime, can you keep going during the summer with outdoor and takeaway? Only in Ashburn. In Ashburn, we have a limited amount of dining area. So in good weather, we can get maybe 40 people outside. But if the weather is not so good, under canopy is about 20. But obviously it's not enough to keep our restaurant going. Wendy Akers uh, and Tom Mulligan, thank you both very much for speaking to us this morning. The former U.S. President Donald Trump will today visit the U.S.-Mexico border amid a surge of migrants trying to illegally enter the United States. Border patrol agents are arresting thousands of people a day, with the vast majority being sent back to Mexico. Our Washington correspondent is at the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas. He's been telling us about the situation there. Well, Mary, I can tell you that right now I'm sitting on the banks of the Rio Grande River. I'm in a town called Roma, Texas. I'm looking across from what I can see. It is pitch black. It's the middle of the night here at the Mexican border. Now, I'm down here with a local pastor from Roma, Texas, a man by the name of Luis Silva. He comes down to the banks of the river every night, and he comes down with a box of cereal bars, protein bars, bottles of water, and hands out refreshments to the migrants as they come across in their little rafts. Just literally in the last few minutes, we were looking into total darkness across on the Mexican side. Then flashlights started to light up. We heard a baby cry. We heard some children coughing. And they started to load these young migrants onto a small inflatable raft that is, as I speak to you, just coming across the border here now. It's crossing the Rio Grande River and they are being brought on to the U.S. side. And what happens then, Mary, is that this group of migrants who have just crossed illegally into the U.S. will walk up a dirt track and they will be arrested because there is a team of Border Patrol agents at the top of this dirt track waiting for them, and a lot of the time they 
want to be arrested because that then begins the asylum process. Right now, there's a perception out there that Donald Trump was tough on border security. Joe Biden's letting everybody in. That is not the case. Joe Biden actually didn't lift a lot of the Donald Trump restrictions, particularly when it came to COVID. The vast majority of these migrants that come here tonight, I can see them gathering here right now beside me as they've come off this boat. They will be arrested and the vast majority will be sent back to Mexico. The ones that won't be sent back are the young children, any unaccompanied minors or families with very young children, they have a better chance of staying. Earlier today, we spoke to a couple and their young daughter. They had made the journey the whole way from Guatemala, and they began that journey two months ago. Elder Rosales was the man, Laddie was his wife, and their little two-year-old daughter was Lacey. Now, they had a business in Guatemala. They said that they worked uh, with a small business selling corn and beans, but they said they were the victims of extortion by local gangs and that they had threatened their safety, so they felt they had no choice but to make the treacherous two-month journey, and they arrived here on the U.S. border last Sunday. I spoke to them a little bit earlier about their experience, and they spoke to us through a translator. It was very scary. Uh, we were scared that bo the Border Patrol in Mexico would, would, would uh, capture us and send us back to our homeland. Uh, obviously, with Donald, President Donald Trump, it was a little bit harder for us to, to come across, but now that President Biden is here, he gave us this, this opportunity, and now it's our job to uh, take advantage of it, and we're grateful for President Biden. Brian, how serious is the migrant crisis at the border now? And indeed, what is the Biden administration doing to address it? Well, Mary, the numbers are very, very stark when you hear them. So in the month of May alone, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency arrested 180,000 migrants. That was just in one month, and that is the biggest monthly total since the year 2000. It's also an increase on the previous two months. It means that since October, more than a million apprehensions have been made at the U.S.-Mexico border. So there's no doubt there is this massive influx right now. We met those two migrants that I spoke to earlier on at a center in in a city called McAllen, Texas. It's a Catholic charity, humanitarian respite center, and it's run by Sister Norma Pimentel. And I spoke to her earlier, and she spoke about the pain and the suffering that she has seen from these people who have made this massive journey, taken all these risks and all these gambles, because many of them feel that life from the countries that they're coming from is far, far worse. I see a mother that's pregnant, about to deliver, and I say, why? Why did you risk your life? And look at you in the conditions you are with your little girl. And I said, and their answer is always the same. If I had stayed, my little girl would not be alive today. I think that we had to risk and come and, and pray that we will be safe somewhere else. Brian, the former U.S. President Donald Trump will visit his famous border wall today. What are we expecting from that visit? Well, I think we can expect a lot of criticism of the Biden administration and of their immigration policies. Donald Trump is in I told you so mode. He held a big rally at the weekend. He's going to hold another one next weekend. And at last weekend's rally, he spoke a lot about how Joe Biden's immigration policies were damaging and that they had led to this surge and that he was weak on border security. And interestingly, Mary, we went to see Donald Trump's famous border wall earlier on in a part of Texas today. Some bits of it were unfinished, but other bits, construction has resumed 
around again. Joe Biden, when he became president, he stopped funding Donald Trump's border wall. But here in Texas, Governor Greg Abbott has started to build the wall again himself. He's using state funds and he's also using private donations. Joe Biden, for his part, has appointed his vice president, Kamala Harris, to look into the root causes of migration. And she had come under fire for failing to visit the border, but she did eventually visit the border herself on Friday. But Donald Trump, of course, quick to come out and say the only reason Kamala Harris was going to the border was because he was going to the border today. Brian O'Donovan reporting there. Now, a group of 42 clinicians at the National Maternity Hospital have raised concerns that misinformation and misunderstanding, as they put it, could lead to the planned new National Maternity Hospital on the site of St. Vincent's being delayed. In a letter published in today's Irish Times, the clinicians say that there is a cast-iron guarantee that there will be no religious restrictions on the services provided at the hospital. The letter says that all procedures, including terminations, tubal ligation, transgender and assisted reproduction services will be provided at the new facility. One of the 42 clinicians to sign that letter is Professor Mary Higgins, consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist who works out of both hospitals and she's with me now in studio. Professor Higgins, good morning. Good morning and good morning to everyone who's listening. Um, Your main concern here in this letter is you say that there is misinformation and misunderstanding uh, and that this will delay uh, the building of this hospital. What do you mean by misinformation and misunderstanding. I say this because as a clinician and as an Irish woman, as someone who advocated to repeal the eight, who voted for it and then introduced the service as part of a team, that I have severe reservations that the information that's going out to the public saying that we will not be able to provide amongst other things, abortion care amongst in the hospital, that this is incorrect and that I'm 100% confident that just as we're providing it currently within the two hospitals, we can continue to provide it when Hollow Street moves to the Vincent's campus. Campaigners on this, they say they want two things. They want public ownership and a secular ethos for a hospital which is being paid for by the people of Ireland. So what's wrong with those objectives? Well, first of all, I can say as a clinician and as a person of Ireland that the hospital is secular. Religion has no part in any of the care that I provide. Secondly, I will say that the guarantee that people suggest that if the hospital is made public that they will guarantee abortion services isn't true. There are public hospitals in the country who are not providing full abortion care. The voluntary hospitals, and there's a huge debate that needs to be had about voluntary versus public, which I don't really want to go into, but the voluntary hospitals, the three Dublin hospitals, Hollow Street, the Coombe and the Rotunda, are all providing full abortion care. And not only are they providing it in a very efficient way, and a very evidence-based way, but they're also providing it in a humane and compassionate way, which I think is really important in an area like this. You say in your letter, um, and I'll quote you, we as clinicians could not countenance any restriction on our practice based on religion. A cast iron guarantee in this regard is included in the proposed operating licence to be granted by the Department of Health for the, the new hospital. And then yet in an exchange on Twitter two days ago when you were asked yourself by Nolene Blackwell of the Rape Crisis Centre about whether reproductive services would be carried out at St. Vincent's as a right rather than as permission, you said there can never be a cast iron guarantee. That is snake oil and I am not a peddler of same. Yes. Um, Can you explain why in the letter you say there's a cast iron guarantee, but on Twitter you appear to be saying something different? Well, I'm saying this because... I mean, I thought I was going on holidays last year and I didn't get to go. So I don't think there's any full 100% guarantee in life. 
when you, we talk but about saying, when we talk about that there is a cast iron guarantee. and that is because as a weird when we talk about governance we talk about clinical governance so as a clinician i am happy that we have full clinical governance in this area but i am humble enough to realise that there can be exceptions because I don't think anyone can do this and I don't think making the hospital a public hospital gives a cast iron guarantee. What we have at the moment is as much as we need as clinicians to provide clinical governance within an area to say that we will provide abortion care as part of all the care that we're providing to women, to girls, to men for fertility service, to transgender people, that that is what we require at the okay, moment. OK, but you, you, you said there there isn't a cast iron guarantee now, which, which contradicts what is said in the letter. And I, I suppose, doesn't that go to the core of uh, what campaigners in this hospital want? And they, they, th- they obviously believe there's a better chance of a guarantee around providing those services without religious um, interference if uh, this hospital is publicly owned. I would say that, first of all, as I said before, the hospital is secular already. And second of all, making it public does not guarantee it. And that is a false guarantee. We have the clinical governance. I am humble enough to say this is not black and white because we we can never guarantee anything in life. But from what I have seen from so far, I am satisfied and not only satisfied, I'm 100% confident. And so are all the colleagues from multiple different medical specialities who work in both sites and in other sites are happy that this will work. The Taoiseach has suggested that this uh, dispute could be resolved with some changes in governance. Um, If the state, for example, were allowed to appoint its own directors, that this uh, might bring an end to the current row. Would you support that? So I'm a clinician. I'm aware that when it comes to the NMH DAC, the designated activity company that this company, that there is um, a member of the board who is a, who is appointed by the Minister for Health. Other than that, that is out of my scope of practice. I'm here as a clinician saying that the, that the care will be provided by the clinical staff. I, I know, but people might wonder why you're not using your influence as a clinician. Uh, 42 uh, clinicians decided to use their influence this morning in the Irish Times. And people might wonder, why would you not use your influence with the board to ask them to bend or compromise a little bit and that that might bring an end to, to this current um, dispute? We have been looking at this as clinicians for many years and we had some concerns which have now been resolved with the Mulvey Agreement and the, and the formation of the DAC. And we have the also the operating lease that specifically says that all legal procedures are under care. That is what is, satisfies me. I am satisfied with the information that we have on the board at the moment. And I think other than that, then it depends on the Department of Health and what they need to be satisfied. But as a clinician who is providing the care, who will have a permanent contract until I retire in 20 years time, and I've now given my age out on national radio. But anyway, as a clinician who's going to be providing for the next 20 years, I am satisfied. I'm not just satisfied. I'm 100 percent confident that we can continue to do this. All right, Professor Mary Higgins, consultant, obstetrician and gynaecologist, thank you very much indeed for joining us in Morning. Let's stay with sport, the Euros, and after yesterday's drama tonight, as Darren said, it's England and Germany in the last second round game at Wembley and the latest chapter in a long-running international drama. A disputed goal to give England a win in the 1966 final. Peter Bonatti and Germany's win four years later. Germany on penalties in 1990, again in 1996. A toilet resignation in 2000, 5-1 in Munich, 4-1 in Bloemfontein and more. And for England, well that's just Germany. Knockout football means the prospect of penalties and the fear of being their country's Kylian Mbappe tonight. Here's a little reminder, starting in Turin. Responsibility for Chris Waddle now. The Ordner knows that if he keeps Waddle out here, 
Germany are in the final and England are out. Would you want to be Chris Waddle now? just recently forced his way into the England side Southgate model they call him at uh, model at uh, Aston Villa he does everything right well let's hope he can do this right as well saved it oh my word oh my word indeed the current England manager Gareth Southgate missing a penalty for England against Germany in 1996 on the therapist couch for us this morning Jack Pitbrook for England. He covers England for The Athletic and for Germany. Raphael Honigstein also of The Athletic and Der Spiegel. Thank you both very much for joining us on Morning Ireland today. Jack, what does England against Germany in a knockout game mean to you? Well, to me, I think it means childhood memories of watching um, all those big games that you just mentioned. 1996 obviously stands out the Euro 2000 game. Those two massive in their own way qualifiers for the 2002 world cup um which germany won at wembley and then england won in munich and then of course 2010 although what's been so striking about gareth southgate's preparation for this game is he has rejected any discussion of those games at all really saying that they're not relevant the players are too young now and it's time for them to make their own history it mightn't be relevant for the players but it's certainly relevant for everybody watching Yes, it is, and it's you know it's a big part of of the media over the last few weeks. Obviously, um, fans talk about it a lot, but I, th- I do think Southgate is right to put a bit of distance between history and now. Like he, he made a very he had a great line the other day on, in a TV interview. He said, "You can't expect the current England players to know the story of Peter Bonetti and nineteen seventy." And of course, he's right. You know, most of these England players were born, you know, in the late nineteen nineties or the early two thousands. And this, you know, I don't think the history is at all helpful for the players. I think it it only adds extra pressure, and I don't think they need the extra motivation. Raphael, you've lived in England for nearly 30 years now. What does the rivalry, the prospect of your boys meeting England, mean to you? It's not really a rivalry in the classic sense that it comes with all this anxiety and trauma from repeated defeats and, and strong feelings of animosity. Uh, the relationship to English football is a different one. First of all, we've had success in the big games for the last 50-odd years, but also we we kind of tend to look up to England as a respect for, for English tradition, for Wembley as a symbol of football itself, and it doesn't come with all those negative feelings and that kind of emotional baggage. So yes, it's a big game. We don't want to lose, especially I don't want to lose because I live in, in London and I'm going to get all the English patriotism and, and uh, euphoria if, if they do go through. But it doesn't come, if you were, with that extra layer of importance. It's big enough on its own terms. The last 16 at Wembley against England, a team that uh, has given Germany lots of trouble before and often close and historic encounters, but not the sort of national obsession that you perhaps see on the other side of the channel. Is it perhaps not as big a rivalry for Germany because, well, frankly, you usually win? I think that certainly plays into it. Um, the, the team that we fear a lot and most is Italy because we hadn't beaten them in a major competition forever until a very fortunate penalty shootout in 2016, and we still fear them 
because they tend to destroy our dreams the way perhaps Germany have done with England. Uh, there's also a very strong emotional dislike, mutual, uh, mutually felt rivalry with the Dutch for different reasons, a lot of them historic uh, and to do with geographical proximity and stylistic differences. We don't simply don't have the same kind of emotional response to the English. Um, it is a bit one-sided in that respect. Jack, Raphael spoke about the anxiety and trauma that England uh, attach with Germany, but they also attach it with knockout tournaments and penalties. Yeah, yeah, they they certainly do, and it will be impossible not for anyone who remembers it not to think about 1986. That said, England have won both of their penalty shootouts since Southgate's been manager, the famous one against Colombia in 2018, and then a slightly less famous one against Switzerland in the nation in 2019. And it's, if it does go to penalties, I don't think it should be any more any more terrifying than it would be for any other country. You know, England have got very good penalty takers in their team and Kane and Rashford. They've got a very good penalty-saving goalkeeper. And they've done huge amounts of preparation over the last two years. That's not to say that they would win, but it, it needn't be quite as scary as I think some people would would normally have it. Raphael, it could be argued that it's, it's, it's the lazy refuge of any football analyst or indeed uh, any outside analyst to, to try and invest too much in, in what they read about a country from the performance of their football team. And Germany has, over the years, been described as, as reliable and perhaps a little bit boring. You could hardly describe them as that in this tournament. Um, dreadful in the first game, brilliant in the second game, dreadful in the third game. What's going to happen now? <laughs> I think the, the roles might have reversed a little bit. It's England with a dull, functional, but very effective master plan. And Germany, a bunch of individuals who one day turn up and one, one day don't, which makes it so difficult to predict. We, we still don't know is the answer. There is a hope, there's an aspiration that because this game is so big, because it's Wembley, it's against a very good England team or relatively good England team, somehow that added pressure, that added sense of occasion will bring out the best of this Germany team. But I can't pretend, and I don't think anyone can, that anyone has real confidence that this will happen simply because Germany has been so inconsistent, not just at this tournament, but throughout the last three or four years. We've seen good performances and terrible performances with no pattern to discern what will happen next. So my hope is that Germany will find a way to come together in the face of this, this huge occasion, but I can't tell you that I'm really 100% sure it will happen. Jack, for Brexit Britain trying to emerge from a pandemic, what would a home win against Germany mean? Oh, it, it would be huge. I think, I think a lot of people had expectations that this Euros would be a big rallying point for the country after a um, pretty tough 18, last 18 months. I don't really feel like it's taken off in that sense yet. I don't know whether that's because the football hasn't been that exciting from England or maybe because of lingering COVID restrictions. But I do think that if England do win this afternoon, it will be absolute mayhem for the next two weeks, or at least until England get until England get knocked out. I mean, England have only ever won one knockout game in the European Championships. Yes. And that was Spain in, 19, in Spain in 1996. So it would be penalties, a, yes. yeah, a huge step into the unknown for England to win this afternoon. Raphael, if the football hasn't been terribly exciting from England, it's been pretty exciting from almost everybody else. What was going through your mind watching France go out in penalties last night? Well, I, I found it hard to believe uh, because the French were my favourites. I thought they were by far the best team at the Euros. They, they probably still are by far the best team at the Euros, but they managed to 
Um, yeah, uh, I wanted don't want to use language on on, on broadcast. It's uh, inappropriate, but uh, they managed to mess things up um, quite badly. And uh, and Switzerland, you know, they they believe they stuck in there. They're not they're not an amazing side, but uh, they battled. And I guess it it went to show. It goes to show that the differences between international teams are not nearly as strong as those between the really great teams in the Champions League and those below them. Uh, this is the only sort of game left that you can see players of much lesser quality celebrating victories over, over the likes of Mbappe and Benzema and, and Griezmann. And that's what okay. makes it so exciting. That's what gives us a chance because I see Germany as underdogs. So I take some heart from that defeat yesterday from the bench. Raphael Honigstein, Jack Pitbrook, thank you both very much for speaking to us. The game is live on RTE Television from half past four this afternoon. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.